marries a Canaanite girl. He has three sons with her, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And he lives there a long time. In fact, he lives there long enough to need wives for his sons. And he picks out nice Canaanite girls from the local area. Picks out one in specific, a, a girl named Tamar. Let's, let's read on. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. And then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste his semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So Judah picks out this Canaanite girl, Tamar, Uh, The text doesn't tell us a whole lot about Ur other than the fact that he is so wicked that God puts him to death. How'd you like to have that be your epitaph? Uh, I don't know what his specific sin was. It's hard to say, uh, and the text does not. But among the Canaanites, uh, among whom Judah and his sons are are living, uh, there's rampant idolatry, including child sacrifice, Uh, all kinds of perversions that are widely embraced. And apparently Ur is, for all intents and purposes, a Canaanite. And God puts him to death, as he later will the Canaanites as a whole people. And God has great patience, but it does have a limit, and apparently Ur reached it. And God put an end to his life. And Ur's death... Uh, meant that a social custom that's very strange to us, what was common at the time, comes into play. And that is is that uh, if you were part of a family and there was more than one son, the idea was that you, as the younger brother, if your older brother died, you as the younger brother would marry his wife and produce children with her, and the firstborn son that you had would legally be your brother's son and would carry on his family line. So that the the idea was that 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 no male child would uh, no male uh, family line would ever die out completely. Because that was considered a great tragedy. And in fact, it becomes part of the Mosaic law later on that you have a responsibility. Now, this was that Part of it was about carrying on that family line. Part of it was also about protecting that woman. Now, that may seem a strange way of doing that, but this is in a day prior to you know things like Social Security, Medicare, welfare, all that kind of stuff. And if you were a woman who had been married before, you very often could not get married again. No one wanted to marry someone else's previous wife. And then on top of that, if your parents died, then you were just kind of out on your own. You were a widow, you were defenseless, you had no one to take care of you. And so this custom arose as a way of protecting those women and also raising up a way of carrying on the family line of a a deceased brother. Now, uh, if this were operative in our day... 
I'd want to be checking out my brother's wife before they get married. <laughs> because if, if I've got to be married to that gal for the rest of my life, I need to give the, the okay on this. And by the way, you need to start jogging. <laughs> okay. Uh, but nevertheless, this was the custom of the time. And uh, Onan marries his, 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 uh, his brother's wife. And his responsibility is to produce a son. Because sons always stayed part of the family and took care of their mom and dad. When, the, when mom and dad were too old, mom, they were taken care of by their family, by their sons specifically. If you had daughters, you became, the daughters who got married became part of their husband's family. And so it was very important you have sons to take care of you in your old age. And so... Uh, Onan has this responsibility, but he doesn't really want to pay the costs associated with raising a child that's not his. And so uh, he does enjoy his brother's wife, but he decides that he does not want to have a child. And he does this repeatedly. And what he has done of taking advantage of the situation and taking advantage of this lady displeases God, and God puts him to death. And that leaves the third son, who's too young to get married. He's still a boy. And Judah says, you know what? My youngest, I only got three boys. Two of them are dead. I only got one left, and he's a boy. He's not old enough to get married. When he gets old enough... I'll marry, I'll marry you off to him. But in the meantime, why don't you go back and live with your father? You know, I don't have anybody in the family, and, you know, just go back and live with your father. That would be more appropriate. And eventually, Sheila goes, grows up. But Judah doesn't offer, her, offer him to Tamar as a husband. Let's look at this. Verse 12, in the course of time, the wife of Judah, she was daughter, died. So Judah's own wife passed away. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Eniam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. And when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. And he said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that's in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. And then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. And when Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take the pledge, take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. 
And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute that was at Anayim by the ro- at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or else we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. And about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Jayla, and he did not know her again. And when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb, and when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Now, let me just say this, just in case anyone is confused, okay? Just because something in the Bible does not mean it is there as a good example for us to follow. Okay? Lots of things are in the Bible. In fact, I had someone make this argument to me that, well, you know, in, in the Bible you've got, you know, the patriarchs that marry more than one woman. I mean, Solomon gets crazy on that idea. Uh, marries about 900 different women. Uh, and... You know, you've got uh, all kinds of immorality and, and immoral relationships and, and, um, and men carrying off women, you know, as prizes from war and so forth. And, and so, therefore, who can really say what the biblical idea of marriage is? Okay. And you go, well, look, just because something is in the Bible does not mean it's a recommended practice. Okay. Context does determine whether this is something which is approved of or not. And in a story like this, it's very clear that Judah's actions are not something the Lord approved. Just a record of what happened. This is what happened. And you may wonder, how is it that God can use someone like Judah? But the angels wonder how he can use someone like you. So, um, just so we're all keeping it fair. All right? Uh, And... Frankly, like me, um, I've said before that if you knew all that God knows about me, you would not let me be your pastor. And if and if I knew everything that God knows about you, I would not let you be a member of the church. Um, and and I say that all to say there's a lot of times enough sin to go around, and lots of us have done things of which we're not particularly proud. And Judah and Tamar's incident here is shameful and it's something of which no one should be proud and yet it isn't exactly what happened uh, uh, this boy number three uh, Sheila or Shayla is old enough to get married 
but Judah has not kept his promise to a point that it becomes obvious that he has no intention of doing so. And this woman is realizing, look, I'm not getting any younger here. If I don't have a son at some point, I might never have one. And then when my parents die, I'll be left a destitute widow. And in those days, people did not, as a rule, live that long. So the clock is ticking. And she's like, look, I can't marry anybody else. And this boy has been promised to me. Now that he's a man, he should be my husband. And I need to have a son now. And nothing's happened. So she decides to take matters into her own hands and ensure that she is taken care of rather than abandoned. And so she takes off her widow's clothes. I don't know what that looks like. In, I know that in, um, in former days in this country, uh, women were you know, kind of expected as part of cultural convention to wear black for at least a year after their husband died, indicate that they were in mourning over their husband and that kind of thing. Uh, I think sometimes that custom was followed and, and sometimes not, depending on the available supply of ladies. Pioneer days, sometimes it was a little tough. But uh, in any case, she takes off her widow's clothes and she dresses up. She puts on something nice. She puts on a veil so she's not going to be recognized. Oh, lots of women wore veils. There's nothing necessarily indicative uh, about wearing a veil. But Judah doesn't recognize her because she's veiled. And she goes out to, to meet him uh, out where she thinks he will be. And he sees her and is a woman all alone, unaccompanied. And he concludes, ah, there's a, the text says, sacred woman. Now this gives you a key into the, uh, the worship of the Canaanites at that time. They had what were called sacred women, uh, cult prostitutes, ladies that as part of the worship of the god Baal, you could go and pay money to and have an encounter, and it was considered worship of the gods. Now, as you can imagine, this is an appealing belief system for a lot of people, and it became the dominant belief of the, the people of Canaan. That as you engage in these encounters with these sacred women, that then the gods would bring the rain and fertility on the land. Uh, it's a gross belief system. In fact, I've been very restrained in describing it. Because it's worse than you know. But he... He is essentially assimilated into Canaanite culture. And he says, ah, my wife has died. Here's the sacred woman, the local one. I'll go to her. He does not know it's his daughter-in-law. He doesn't have any money. And so she says, well, uh, you don't have any, any, uh, any medium of exchange here. What will you give me? Well, uh, I'll give you a young goat. Well, um... I'm going to need something more, more certain than your word, so give me some of your stuff. And what she gives him is significant. She asked for, she asked for his signet, the cord, and his staff. 
And it's a st- his staff is not just a stick. It's something that symbolizes that family and his and Judah's place in it as the patriarch. And it was a, an elaborate staff. And it represented the fact that you were head of the family and it a lot of times was carved with family history. And it was a significant heirloom in each family. And she says, give me that, because you'll want that back. And give me your signet. Well, it's, a, it's a, a clay cylinder with a cord that ran through the middle of it. And what you did when you, um, when you needed to sign an official document or to give your seal uh, to pay for something was you would put that seal into clay or into wax. And it was like your signature. It was like the ancient equivalent of gold card. Uh, I will hold your gold card and your family stick and <laughs> until the goat comes. <laughs> and he says, well, okay, that seems fair. So they have their encounter. And then uh, she goes home. She takes off the clothes she had on, puts her widow's clothes back on, and everything continues pretty much as normal for the next three months until it becomes obvious as she starts to show that she is pregnant. Well, she's been living in her father's house. She's not supposed to be having any relationships with anybody else, and yet she's pregnant. How did this happen? She must be an immoral woman. She must be a prostitute. And so Judah says, bring her out and let's burn her. Let's put her to death. Now, is there anything more hypocritical than a guy who's just been to a prostitute trying to put to death his daughter for being his daughter-in-law for being one? But in any case, uh, she there's a massive double standard here at work, and he's about to enact this punishment for prostitution. And she says, "Oh, by the way, before you get the fire going, I'm pregnant by the man who owns this stuff." And obviously he recognizes his stuff. And he's, he loses face. He's embarrassed in front of the entire community. And it says that he realizes, look, I've got no place to stand in judgment over her. I didn't do what I promised, and now she's taken matters into her own hands. And he's never intimate with her again. But... Tamar has two sons, Perez and Zerah, and both of them one day grow up to be counted among the clans of Judah. In fact, Jesus himself descends as the son of David through the family line of Perez, which is interesting how that works. I think there's a couple major areas where this text applies to our lives. Uh, Number one, and this is important, straying from the flock will get you devoured by the lion. Straying from the flock will get you devoured by the lion. In 1 Peter, Peter says that the devil is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And here's what I know to be true about predators. They always pick off the weak and the sick and those that are on the edges of the flock first. Why? Because they're easiest to get. You know, coyotes eat a lot of fawns. 
Why? Because they're small and they don't run very fast. And if you've got a deer that's maybe crippled and is in deep snow, you're going to pull him down. But if you get a lot of deer together and you get some healthy ones in there, then the big herd bulls will bite off the predators and run them off. But if you're out on the edges and you're out away from the flock, out away from the herd, what happens is, is that you get become easy prey. And Judah separates himself uh, from his family, from all of the people in the world at that time to whom the re- revelation of God is coming and through whom it's coming into the world. And he starts living just like the Canaanites and Sin, therefore, follows him like night follows day. And as a pastor, I can tell you this is absolutely true, that very often the first, per, the first sign that I get that a person is slipping into sin and slipping into the maw of that roaring lion is that they start getting inconsistent in their church attendance and they start pulling away from the people who know them well. They do. One of the reasons we have y'all fill out that attendance book, we like to know who's here and all that, uh, and how many people were here and all that kind of thing. And that's all good you know, from a data perspective, but it's also from a pastoral care perspective. If somebody's name is missing from the roll for a few weeks, and then it becomes a few months, it's very often a sign that they are edging away from the flock and getting themselves into trouble in some place they ought not be. Very often. You don't, if you don't um, believe me, listen to another pastor. This is Pastor Kevin DeYoung, a guy that I respect, uh, that I, I read his books. This is what he says. This is his latest book, From the Hole in Our Holiness, is what it's called. The Hole in Our Holiness. He says, in more than a decade of pastoral ministry, I've never met a Christian who was healthier, more mature, and more active in ministry by being apart from the church. But I've found the opposite to be invariably true. The weakest Christians are those least connected to the body. The man who attempts Christianity without the church shoots himself in the foot, shoots his children in the leg, and shoots his grandchildren in the heart. And that's true. A lot of people who think that somehow I can be a Christian all by my lonesome, all out on my own, and I don't need the church, and I don't need my fellow believers, and I don't need to be connected in with other people who know my stuff and that I am opening up my life to. And I can do this on my own, and nothing bad is going to happen to me by being way out on the edges of the flock. Nothing in my pastoral experience or that of anyone else I know suggests that that is true. And I've got mountains of evidence that it's not. I can tell you stories of person after person after person who starts to slowly drift away and then all of a sudden finds themselves doing and participating in things they never imagined. Don't leave your brothers 
and your sisters behind. Or to quote the scriptures, Hebrews chapter 10, 24 and 25. Writer Hebrews says, Let us consider how to spur one another on to love and good deeds, and let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. Why? It's dangerous. If you want to pursue Christ, you can't do it on your own. You can't. And the further you get away from your brothers and sisters, the further away you get from the Lord very often. Second point. Probably ridden that hobby horse long enough. God is gracious even in the midst of heinous sin. God is gracious even in the midst of heinous sin. How many of you would be grieved to find out that your son had participated in something like Judah's sin? I have to say, absolutely. It's some of the worst among the people of God that is committed in the book of Genesis. But God is being gracious to Judah even while he is in the midst of doing some of the nastiest sin that the Bible records. God takes the lives of two of Judah's sons, the two wicked boys. But he replaces them with two other sons through Judah's own sin. And those two boys have an inheritance in God's people despite being conceived in a shockingly immoral way. And I find that, I don't know about you, but I find that totally unfathomable that God is that gracious. That God says, you know what, Judah? I'm going to use these two boys that came about as a result of your relationship with your daughter-in-law, which never should have happened. And I'm going to bring about salvation for the entire world through the descendant of one of those boys. This story is a story not just of warning against sin, but of God's grace even in the midst of it and of using everything in someone's life, even their worst moments, even their sin, to bring glory to himself and salvation for other people. God is that gracious. God is capable, therefore, if he's capable of using Judah's sin, his worst moment in his entire life, to bring glory to himself and salvation for others, guess what? It means that God is capable of wading with me into the nastiness of mine and bringing good even out of that. You know, we quote that verse, Romans 8, 28, that God works all things together for good for those who called according to his purpose to those who loved him, right? And we quote that verse, and we quote it a lot around times when people are sick or when someone is dying or has died. We, we quote that verse, and we should, because it's good and it's true. 
and it's something that gives us something to hang on to when times are tough. But it's also a promise that is given to us to remind us that God is able to use even our sin. Not that we should be engaged in it so that God can get more glory. Heaven forbid we should make that conclusion. But that even our sin is something God uses ultimately for our good and His glory. That God is unspeakably gracious. That He reaches even into the nastiest people's lives. To bring good for them and glory for himself. And if God can do that for Judah, he can do that for me, he can do that for you. And he will as you turn to him. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God of grace. That you are a God of love and of compassion and of mercy. And also a God of judgment. A God who does not leave the wicked unpunished or sin to get free reign in the world, but your patience does have a limit. Father, we thank you that you demonstrate over and over how gracious you are in withholding punishment from sin and bringing grace into the lives of those who seek you. And Father, we thank you for this example of both warning and grace that we ought not do as Judah did, But even if we fall into sin as he did, Father, you are right there able to bring good for us and glory for you even out of that. We pray, Father, with great thankfulness in Jesus' name. Amen.